Good morning. Aren't we blessed? Amen. Worship team, thank you very much. Youth worship team, thank you very much. I feel so blessed this morning. My name's Les Miata, and we're going to be talking about something very unusual today. Some of you may have thought that doubt may have, might be a bad thing. That if you had a doubt, maybe it would be contrary to what you believed in God, what you believed in Jesus Christ. I'm going to try and dispel that thought today. But first, I love what our kids do. I love how they're dismissed in the morning. I love how they have one thought they take from this auditorium before they leave. So I have my own big idea. <laughs> and just like the kids do, I'm going to count one, two, three, and with enthusiasm, we are all going to say today's big, big idea. All right? And the big idea is it's not about doubt. On three, with feeling and enthusiasm. One, two, three. It's not about the doubt. Well done. Now you can leave and go meet. No, no. <laughs> what is doubt? I'm sure you've all had them once in a while. The cloud of doubt. What does that really mean? We, we know it as maybe skepticism. It's uncertainty. Sometimes it's Maybe you don't trust the situation. You don't trust somebody. You just don't believe. And maybe it's hesitation or wavering. That's the Latin root of the word doubt. I've had some doubt occasionally. Um, I created a hypothetical situation for you. Imagine that you're, you're offline. You're you're out of touch with everything. No phone, no tablet, no computer, no television, no newspapers. Who reads newspapers these days anyway? Right? You're on a vacation. You're disconnected from everything. You come back on the plane. You sit beside someone, and they turn to you, and this is end of April, and they say, can you believe it? The Leafs made it through the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> do you believe them, or do you doubt This is a, a part of a research from a company called Barna Research. They're a Christian research firm, and they, they do a lot of stuff asking people, asking Christians about some of their feelings and their sentiments. They said, as a result of the survey, they did, experiencing spiritual doubt can be lonely, but according to their survey, it's much more common than you think. Because the, the title of their survey was, Two-thirds of Christians face doubt. Two-thirds! So they experience a time of spiritual doubt. That's not just doubt for the Leafs. That's spiritual doubt. When they question what they believe in their faith, in their religion, or in God. That's pretty severe. When I looked this up, my jaw dropped. Two-thirds. Because we want to believe in something. Everybody has this God-sized hole in their heart that says, I want to believe in something. And we fill it with different things. But in the Christian faith... We believe in Jesus Christ. But do we just believe? Many times we have to see in order to believe. Heard that phrase? I'll believe it when I see it. Right? Now, wasn't that the basis for a lot of Jesus' ministry? He showed the people something. 
He prophesied to them. He healed people. He went and taught people. And they saw the result of what he said, what he did, and then they came to a belief. A belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But, does that also work the other way around? Flip-flop that and say, is there a way that because I believe, now I can see? So is there this circle of belief and seeing, belief and seeing? What can happen sometimes, though, is the fact that you will have a cloud of doubt that shatters this system. But it doesn't stay there. I will define doubt as a spiritual pause button where you get a chance to stop and think about what it is that you believe in. And we'll get into that in in a little more detail this morning. So here's what we're going to do today. I've talked about doubt. I'm going to show you a guy named Doubting Thomas. And I felt sorry for the guy because it's not in the scripture. They don't call him Doubting Thomas. Everybody's given him that name just because of the passage we're about to go through. How would you like to have the name, like, Doubting Verna? <laughs> that, that would be terrible. Okay, but, but we ascribe the adjective doubting to Thomas. That's not fair in my estimation. But we're going to go into detail about the passage that Paul read this morning. And, okay, we talk about Thomas and he had doubts. Was he the only guy? Because he's named Doubting Thomas. Or he's nicknamed Doubting Thomas. Was there anyone else in the Bible that we can see that had doubts about God. And then we're going to look into that whole believing, seeing, and doubt cycle that I talked about that I showed you the diagram on. Then what I want to do is come back to that Barna survey because there's some very, very revealing information about our doubts and how we handle them. And lastly, what would it be if we didn't walk away saying, okay, Les, you've given us all this information, so what do I do with it? Okay, so I want you to leave thinking and thinking about more than it's not just about the doubt. So here it is. Here's the guy. Here's our, our subject for the day, Doubting Thomas. He's one of the 12. He was chosen by Jesus to be one of the disciples. Therefore, he couldn't have been a slack. He couldn't have been a, a know-nothing kind of guy. He couldn't have been an unfaithful guy. Because Jesus chose him as one of the twelve, one of the original guys to follow him. In the text, in the Greek, original Greek text, you'll see the name Didymus, which means twin. I find that unusual because nowhere in scripture does it talk about his twin brother. But he's called Didymus. How'd you like to be going around town and somebody says, hey, twin? Some of you here may be called Thomas, so you're a twin, even if you don't like it. And lastly, as I said, he's most well known for the adjective that goes before his name, doubting Thomas. Thomas was also a committed disciple. He has this bad rap, but on a trip on the way with Jesus and the other disciples to check out what happened to his buddy Lazarus. The disciples knew where they were going was a place called Bethany. And that was a city where the Jews and the Pharisees had first tried to kill Jesus. So they knew it was dangerous there. So what does Thomas do? Does he say, oh, geez, I'm not sure we should go there, Jesus? No, he says, let us go 
that we may also die with him. He had Jesus back. He was committed to his Lord and Savior. And as much as we call him Doubting Thomas, I think this was a huge affirmation of his commitment to the faith. So let's look at today's passage. I'm, I'm going to go through it fairly in depth because it helps understand the perspective of not just the passage, but how it fits in. I'm going to I didn't plan to do this. I'm going to tell this little story. This is important when you talk about perspective and the scriptures or perspective and context for any situation that you're in. Imagine you're behind my wife who's sitting on her phone having what appears to be a video chat with someone. You don't know her real well, but you can see her from behind and she's having this animated chat with somebody and you hear her say out loud, oh, can you show me your underwear? That's what I thought. Dead silence. Like, where is he going with this? But if you knew the context, you would put a smile on your face. And the context is she's talking to her two-year-old grandson who's just toilet training and has his first pair of real underwear on. Does that put her comment into context? Okay? So we're going to do some contextual analysis of this verse. That Sunday evening, the first thing it says, well, what Sunday evening are we talking about? The Sunday evening that Jesus rose from the tomb. If you look back in the verses, about a dozen verses, you will see how Mary Magdalene ran to the tomb, found it empty, and this was first thing in the morning. And then the verse goes on to say, that Sunday evening. Same day that Jesus rose from the tomb. So it's not too far into the resurrection story. Uh, they were meeting behind locked doors. Why was that? They were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had had Jesus crucified. So they were kind of fearful. And then guess what? I found this amazing in, in, this, in the scriptures. All of a sudden, Jesus was there. Jesus was there. It was like Scotty had been in. Nobody saw him come in a door. He didn't knock and say, knock, knock, knock. Can I come in? He just appeared. And then he says, how you doing, guys? How is it, Peter? How's your mom? James and John, you still causing trouble? No, he doesn't say that. He goes right away and shows them the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his side. First thing he does. Why do you think he does that? He thinks maybe these guys still don't believe the fact that I rose from the dead. He's trying to make sure they fully understand the reason for his resurrection. That he came back in bodily form as he had prophesied. And guess what? These guys are overjoyed. Text says they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Wow. What would your reaction be? How many people here, they saw the Lord in person right now, they jump up and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Okay. We're all that enthusiastic, not having enough coffee this morning. Okay. And again, he said, Peace be with you. That was a standard Jewish greeting when you greeted anybody, peace be with you. And then guess what? He gives them a pre-Pentecostal filling of the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then the last, last couple of verses here, last verses, might be a little confusing because it says, 
If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. Whoa. Whoa. I thought only God could forgive sins. The interpretation of the verse is that the disciples should ex- proclaim God's forgiveness through Jesus' sacrifice, and that will save people. Again, step back. Context. John, when John wrote the book of John, his focus was mainly on sin, but not as sin as we know it. Not as moral sin, but as sin when you don't believe Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the context of this type of sin that John is referring to. So the next day, whoops, all of a sudden, you talk about one of the disciples wasn't there, it was John. Where's Jesus? Jesus has disappeared from this context. Guess what? He's a little ticked. The disciples must have, what's not in there is my guess is, if they were as excited as they were, and John comes back from wherever he was, John, did you see Jesus? Man, we saw him. We saw the, the nails in his hands. We saw the hole in his side. Wow, he did what he said he was going to do. He came back. And John's doing one of these. There's no way. I wasn't there. There's no way he did that because I need to see him first. I won't believe it unless I see. See and then believe. The nail wood's in his hand. Put my finger in his side. Then I'll believe when I see it. This is one of Jesus' 12 guys. Where was his faith? The passage goes right on to say, a week later. A week later. So you've got the situation where 10 of the disciples have seen Jesus. They believed. They were filled with joy. And you've got John all by himself who's waiting to see so he can believe. Imagine what transpires in that week. Hey, come on, Thomas. We told you this, man. We saw him. We saw the wounds in his hands. We saw the wound in his side. Just believe us, man. That's a tough thing to go through. Imagine if you had some doubts and you're sitting there with that doubt for a week. How would you feel? You'd be a little agitated, be a little more ticked off, a little more introspective, saying, why wasn't he there? Like, the, the other guy saw him, he, he did, but he disappeared. I wasn't able to see him. So again, they're in a room. Doors are locked, again, because they're afraid of the Jews, the Jewish leaders. And again, Scotty beams them in. And he doesn't say again, how are you doing, guys? How's the week been? Did you get a chance to think about my resurrection? Uh-uh. Jesus gets right to the point because he knows what the key issue is here. And it's Thomas' disbelief. It's Thomas's doubting. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Jesus is now giving Thomas a chance to believe. He says, see this? Stop doubting and believe. Jesus is okay with us seeing before we have to believe. And what does Thomas do? He gives a proclamation that the other ten guys never said, my Lord and my God. Wow, he's acknowledging Jesus' deity. He's acknowledging the fact that Jesus is God. 
And this is the kicker. Jesus says, you believe because you have seen. But blessed are those who believe without seeing. I want you to raise your hand with great enthusiasm on this question. If you have seen the physical Jesus, not an apparition, not a dream, if you have actually seen Jesus in the flesh, raise your hand. Okay, no one's that old, good. How many people here believe in Jesus? Raise your hand. Belief? Keep your hand up. You are blessed, is what Jesus says. You can put your hand down now. Can you imagine that? Jesus is calling us who believe in Jesus Christ blessed. Wow. So we we now heard the story about Thomas. And there's a good chunk, there's about 10 10 verses in that chapter to talk about why did Thomas doubt. But is he the only guy in scripture that had doubts about God? Like, is he an isolated incident and everybody else is fine, they're they're A plus and they've never had any questions about their faith and about their, their God? Well, Abraham doubted God. God was going to tell him that, you know, when you're 100 and Sarah's 90, you're going to have a baby. Or she's going to have a baby. (laughs) And, you know, under his breath, Abraham's going, right. (laughs) I'm not not going to take a survey. I was going to say, how many people here between 60 and 90 would want to have a baby? (laughs) Um. So this is one of the things, and guess what happens? We all know the story. Sure, Sarah has her baby, and that's Isaac, and there's another, another episode where God again has to, uh, Abraham has to again trust, trust God because he's asked him to sacrifice his son on the altar. But that time, Abraham obeyed to the point of almost sacrificing his son, and then he sees the ram in the, in the bushes and uses the ram as a sacrifice. So he, Abraham uses this as a jumping point to trust God, to not doubt God. Peter, uh, the disciples went out on a boat, as the story goes, and Jesus is left on shore. Okay, but the winds and the wave and the storm comes up, and the disciples are afraid. They're sitting in the boat, and Jesus was, they thought, was still on the land, but they see this person walking on the water, coming toward the boat. And they realize it's Jesus. And they don't know what's going on, but Peter, Peter was a leader, He got up and says, Lord, if it's you, call me. I want to come to you. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. Wow, isn't that cool? But then he sees the waves, the storm, the winds. He gets distracted. He starts to sink. Poor Peter. And Jesus gets close by and reaches down. And Peter reaches up for for Jesus' help. He reaches up. He doesn't just stay there and say, ah, I'm done. I'm toast. I don't believe I'm going to let myself go. No, he sticks his hand. And Jesus reaches down and helps him and pulls him up. And this is a great verse here. Why have so little faith? This is one of his chosen guys. He's accusing of having just a little bit of faith. Why did you doubt me? Wow. 
Here's one of the 12. And Jesus is saying, Peter, why did you doubt me? Now, we all know what happens to Peter. He gets over this. He continues to be Jesus' disciple. As a matter of fact, he's the one that gave the first big sermon in Acts after, after the Holy Spirit came. So his doubt did not cost him anything to do with his faith. And this one I found it really interesting. Just before Jesus ascends, the disciples gather at a mountain and then they saw Jesus. But the text says some, some of them doubted. Here are just this, the, the, the reference, Matthew 28, 16, verse 18 is when Jesus ascends, the great commission. Okay, some of them, some of these disciples, the chosen ones, the text says they doubted Jesus. Oh man, does that disqualify them now? Like Jesus is about to leave and go beside, sit at the right hand of his father. And these guys are still saying, man, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure about this, this Jesus guy. No, Jesus gives a great commission to all of them. And they go on to have very fruitful ministries. So while we see, and these are only a few examples. I had a couple of others, but I had to cut them out because the sermon would have gone two hours. Um, they had very successful ministries after the, the, the incidents where the scripture recorded, this person doubted. So it's not about the doubt. Oh, secondly, if you encounter someone who is a doubter, you do not point the finger. You do not say, Michael, why did you doubt? No, you be merciful. Hey, Mike, I know how you're feeling, man. And that's important because in, in our relationship with others, there is going to be some doubt about your faith at one point or another. And how you interact with that person is going to be really important. So there are other things I want to go over quickly about the whole cycle. Remember, we talked about in the beginning about believing and seeing and having doubt interrupt that process. In the book of Luke, Jesus was replying to someone, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, mustard seed is about the same size of what we know today, same size as a sesame seed. So it's really, really tiny. But that seed, when planted, can grow into a mustard tree that's probably about nine feet, it's about one and a half times my height. So you only have to have faith that small. And you could tell a mulberry tree to get up and move, and it will. That indicates, though, that faith or belief is not all or nothing. This is a story about a father who brings his son who has convulsions to Jesus for healing. And what he does, he brings them and he says, well, Jesus, I, I believe in you. I know you can heal this, my son. But then he appends his appeal with, but if you can do anything. There's a condition there. He believes Jesus can do it, but if you can do anything, help us. Jesus immediately goes, what do you mean if? This is Jesus talking to the Father now. What do you mean if? Anything is possible if a person believes. Believe, and it will happen. With Thomas, remember, it was see, then believe. So we've got two possibilities here. 
Again, Jesus and the disciples are going to visit Bethany, that's the city, not the person, where Lazarus had been, Lazarus died and had been entombed. Jewish tradition and the culture of that time, after three days, you're done, you're toast, you're gone forever. So Martha, remember the Martha and Mary thing where Martha's getting the kitchen ready and, and she says to Jesus, well, tell, your, tell, tell my sister Mary to come and help me. She's the, kind of the busybody. So she says, hey, man, he's been dead for four days and it's going to stink. So don't bother. So Jesus said, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory, which is he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You would see God's glory if you believe. Believe, see. We've got quite a mixture going on here, don't we? And lastly, this is Jesus' affirmation to Thomas we've gone over before. Blessed are those who believe without seeing, but also because of Thomas. Thomas had to see before he believed. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Let's put this all together. This is post-resurrection. This is in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are teaching a bunch of people in a town called Berea. Paul and Silas are preaching. These people are just lapping it up. They can't wait to hear more. They love the teaching. They're with Paul and Silas every day hearing these teachings. But, as we would call what the press does today, fact check. Let's go back to our scriptures, which, by the way, they didn't have the New Testament then. They only had the prophets, writings of the prophets and the law. So they went back to those scriptures because obviously Paul and Silas were talking about how the Old Testament leads into Jesus' Jesus' life. As a result of this fact-checking, guess what happens? Many of the Jews and prominent Greek women and men came to faith. But what had to happen in order for the faith to happen? They had to see. They had to experience. They had to read. And then they believed. Okay? Now, I read part of that um, introduction from the survey from the Barna Group in the beginning. But here's part that I didn't show you. It says, but many of the people in the survey who doubted, they made it through stronger for having faced their honest questions, especially when they had a community to guide them through it. That's really important. Let me see, let's review what this is. So here's the premise of their survey. Says, Have you ever experienced a time of spiritual doubt when you question what you believed about your religion or about God? This is the result of the survey. Some people still did. Some people did doubt and they worked through it. And some people say, I never had a doubt. I wish I was one of those people. 40% who doubted, said, this is like you and, you and me here. I had my doubts, but I went through. And what did they go through so they, they were able to work through it? Where did you go to help find answers? And they were able to select more than one. That's why it doesn't add up to 100%. Number one is friends or family. 
if people in the survey who called themselves Christians had a doubt, the first place they would go is friends or family. And then in sequence, obviously, the Bible, church, spouse, and then in fifth place is Pastor Daniel. When I show this to him, it says, Les, no, I don't want people running to me. I said, don't worry, Daniel, you're number five. You're not, even the, <laughs> you're not even the bronze medal, okay? But it shows that people that work their way through doubt are going to look for some place to help them resolve that doubt, not just let it sit and fester. And especially those who made it, this is a, this is a compilation of everyone who raised their hand and said, yes, I'm a Christian. But when you take out you select only the people who are classified or self-classified as evangelicals, that 53% jumps to 95%. So when we have doubts, let's take it to someone we trust, someone we know, someone who has some knowledge of the faith, a Bible, a pastor, an elder, someone else who we can look to to say, I got this problem. I got this fear. I have this thing I can't work out because it's prompting me to say, gee, are you really sure? Anybody have ever had that little voice inside you that says, hey, are, are you sure about that? Um, did you ever think of this other thing? You sure? Anybody ever have one of those things like pop up? Okay, you're all, okay, I can leave now. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I researched was there's a, um, a website called relevantmagazine.com. And one of their writers in there uh, interviewed a number of, I think it's seven, seven prominent Christian thinkers who had some journals, who had some writings where they expressed doubt. And he did the compilations and tried to understand the common thread throughout all of them. Now, these are high-level names that you will recognize instantly. He looked at people's journals and writings like C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Mother Teresa, Pope Francis. These are all the people he researched. And when he looked at their doubts, he came up with this conclusion. Doubt can actually be something that causes us to dig deeper into our relationship with God and therefore make our faith even stronger. Same conclusion as the Barna study, written independently and differently. So the lesson here. Oh, sorry, That's, here's where we've come from. So we're at the point now where we've understood the lessons, we've understood what the text says about doubting, about be, believing and seeing, and it can go either way. Believing or seeing can come first. We talked about, through the Barna study and the relevant magazine study, what happens when someone doubts. Do they just stop there and stay there and say, okay, I'm going to doubt for the rest of my life? No, the majority go and look for ways to resolve that doubt. So how does that look? Do I just go to someone? No, you need to be assured that Scripture says how you are helped when you have that time of doubt. In Psalm 23, even though when I walk through the darkest valley, through my deepest doubts, through my deepest fears, through my unbelief, my misunderstandings, I will not be afraid. Why? Because you, God, right beside me, right on my hip, I've got you right beside me, God. And your rod and your staff, you protect and you comfort me. You don't have to be afraid of your doubts. God's going to be there with you and for you. Additionally, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do, do not depend on your own understanding of your doubt. 
Seek his will. Find more information. How does he really want to direct you? And all you do, and he will show you what path to take. He will help lead you out of your doubt back into faith. So I'm, I was going to read this, but I, again, I opened with some congregational participation. I want to end with some congregational participation. At the count of three, I want us all to read what's on this slide, okay? One, two, three. It's not about the doubt. It's what we do with that doubt that will impact our faith, our beliefs, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Focusing on doubt puts the emphasis on us, not on Jesus, and it should be the other way around. Slide two. It's about following the disciple Thomas's example, not of his doubting, but his affirming that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God. Our faith is about our belief in Jesus Christ. And despite our doubts, that belief will enable us to see what God wants us to see and be who God wants us to be. It's not about the doubt. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus. I want to end with um, a couple of pages, a couple of paragraphs from a book called Case for Christ, written by a guy named Lee Strobel. Some of you may know this book well. Lee Strobel was a, an atheist by his own admission. He had a background of a law degree at Yale, and he was also the senior editor of the legal column for a newspaper called the Chicago Tribune. Lee Strobel writes, for much of my life I was a skeptic. In fact, I considered myself an atheist. To me, there was far too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking, of ancient mythology, of primitive superstition. How could there be a loving God if he consigned people to hell just, not, just for not believing in him? How could miracles contravene the basic laws of nature? Didn't evolution satisfactorily explain how life originated? Doesn't scientific reasoning dispel belief in the supernatural. And because he has this legal background, he says, I, as far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than the fanciful invention of superstitious people, or, or he thinks. Now, spoiler alert, he comes to faith. The end, he says, sure enough, over time, as I endeavored to follow Jesus' teachings and open myself to his transforming power. My priorities, my values, my character were and continue to be gradually changed. Increasingly, I want Jesus' motives and perspective to be my own. Here's a guy who doubted. He did a ton of research over a period of a year and a half. He talked to scholars, people who are experts in areas of the faith, to come to a conclusion because he now saw, he heard, he understand, he came to a belief in Jesus Christ. Maybe that sounds mystical to you, I don't know. Not so long ago it would have to me. But it's very real to me now and those, and those around me. In fact, so radical was the difference in my life that a few months after I became a follower of Jesus, our five-year-old daughter Allison went up to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy.
that just gets you right there every time. So it's not that Lee Strobel was any different from the average person searching for answers. In fact, he was more than qualified. But eventually he found Jesus. He overcame his doubt. He sought the evidence, an 18-month process, and he came to faith. Let's remember that when we talk to the disciples that we're going to make disciples of. Remember that challenge a couple of weeks ago? Did you leave here doubting that you could be a disciple-making disciple? Let's use these stories, this lesson, as, an abil- as our ability to go out and do that.